Welcome, everyone, to episode 27 of Plotting the Rebellion. My name is Astra County, and I'm here today with my guest and friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Oh, I'm just a guest now, but at least I'm a friend, too, so thank you. I want everyone to feel special, Sam. Why, thank you. I do feel special. Also here to be special is Rain Hendricks. I'm super special, thanks for asking. And our special guest, see what I did there? I do, indeed. <laughs> is Rachel Cax. Rachel works for Angel Hack the world's largest developer ecosystem, where she oversees social impact and diversity initiatives through their hackathons and accelerators. This has included the Lady Problems Hackathon, the Control-Alt-Delete-Hate Hackathon, and a Global Code for Impact Challenge in 63 countries last year. She lives in San Francisco, where you can find her complaining regularly that the bagels just will never be as good as New York City, which I think is fair. <laughs> That's why I had avocado toast this morning, like a true Californian. But was it sourdough toast? At my house, we've been experimenting with fermentation. So it was kind of a sourdough, but it was more of like a whole wheat with a bunch of different types of flour and yeast. Oh, hipster toast. Yes. Fancy pants toast. Awesome. Well, <laughs> it's not that fancy because it was overproved and it didn't rise. So it's more like hipster. I don't know what. Anyways, not here to talk about bread, but very serious about bread. So Rachel, why don't you tell us your origin story and how you got your superpowers? Cool. So I'm not sure how far back to go. Beginning of time. Yes. Beginning of time. Let's see. My first experience with interacting with people as it relates to computers was, and this is probably going to date how old I am, was doing stuff on AIM. So like doing, you know, various types of chat rooms on AIM. I don't know what that means. But anyways, so that's where it started. AIM, GeoCities, MySpace kind of stuff. And then thought I wanted to become an art therapist, studied that for a little bit, then decided to become a real adult, studied communications, got into philanthropy, uh, and was working in philanthropy for five years on big projects where people put a lot of money into things and didn't really see that much impact, and then got to do a couple hackathons in the social impact and philanthropy space, got totally hooked on it and addicted to it and then sought out the hackathon space specifically, got sucked in, and worked on about 100 hackathons last year. In terms of my superpowers... Let's see, if it was 100 hackathons last year, I'm going to go with super endurance. Yeah, super endurance, being able to go without sleep for a long period of time if I'm excited about something, which is probably true for a lot of people. But yeah, I would say that's probably my superpower. How did you get hooked on hackathons? I, I always kind of joke with my team that like I always like cry at the end of each hackathon, which sounds a little bit terrifying, but there's just something about it that is really moving to me personally. I guess it's about people creating things and coming together around a specific issue or topic and working um, tirelessly to create something. And I wish I could say I only cried at the social impact hackathons, but honestly, I've been known to cry at like a boring, you know, like fintech hackathon. Um, so there's just something about it that resonates with me. And I think it's the amount of impact you can achieve in 24 hours. But the one that hooked me was um, I did this hackathon called Chime Hack with Gucci, which is a fashion company, not a technology company. And uh, we had somehow convinced them to do a hackathon uh, at Twitter. And it was for a bunch of nonprofits like UNICEF and Vital Voices and UN Women um, and this really cool organization called Writers for Health. It does mobile health services delivery. 
And there was just something about it. You know, we had like high school girls hacking. We had experienced developers hacking. We had the CTO of Twitter there hacking. And they built this stuff for these nonprofits that, you know, some of them could actually use. And it was just really cool. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like I, in my mind, I was like, we're going to do a hackathon and then just literally figured it out, had no idea. And the outcomes were pretty cool. So that's the original one that hooked me. But I get hooked pretty much time, every time I do it again and again. So, yeah, it's just my thing. So, Rain, I understand that you have thoughts about hackathons. I have thoughts about hackathons, yeah. I don't hate hackathons in general, but I think that there are some bad hackathons, especially the corporate-sponsored ones tend to be bad. And I think that it's a challenge to make them fair and available for everyone. It's definitely true about certain hackathons. And I would say for me, it's kind of about, yeah, so I, that episode with Zuri Hunter, that was like the first time I found out about Greater Than Code because Zuri has come to a, quite a few of our hackathons and she was talking about her experience with those hackathons. And that's how I found out about your show, actually. So yeah, I mean, not all corporate hackathons are good. We do a lot of corporate hacks. So as much as I love doing like the social impact hackathons, uh, corporate hackathons are kind of you know, where it's at in terms of running a business, I'll say. And they're not all, you know, made equal. So I agree with that statement. Um, and we can dig into it more if you'd like. We try to make them as uncorporate as we can. Um, we don't always succeed at that, but trying to make it fun and inclusive. And it's hard. Um, we've been working a lot on trying to make them more inclusive and diverse in terms of skill sets and backgrounds. But it's always something we have to keep trying to do better and better. I could describe more specifically what my issues are, if that would yeah. help. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my sort of general issue is that hackathons are available to people with the free time to spend working on the stuff that you know you yeah. want them to work on. Uh, my specific issue with corporate hackathons is that they are sometimes you do things that benefit this company and we'll pay you with pizza for your labor. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, the free time point, that's, a, that's an interesting one. And something we're trying to figure out is how do we shift this model around? So I mentioned like a topic that I was thinking about discussing with you guys was this concept of, you know, there are projects that need help and need to be worked on, but the kind of people who might be able to help with those projects don't necessarily have a weekend to devote to hacking. So we've started doing a lot more virtual hackathons. Um, like we just did a global blockchain one. It was blockchain for public sector with the government of the UAE. So that one was, we had people from all over the world hacking. And then we're doing one right now called Data Hack for Fi, which is a financial inclusion hackathon across seven countries in Africa. And that one's virtual. So we're trying to figure out new models where, you know, say you are not a student or someone who's in their early 20s with no obligations besides a weekend to spend hacking and doing an overnight. We're trying to figure out new models for that. So I think that's a valid criticism, although we'll probably keep going with, you know, that Saturday, Sunday hackathon model for a while because it is fun for a lot of people. And then the free labor question, I think, you know, what we always try to do, and I don't think it like fully solves that question is, you know, allowing people to or making sure that people own the IP that they create out of the hackathon. And then the majority of our hackathons, so uh, we run this global series, we accelerate the teams coming out of those hackathons and they own their IP. And so the idea is that they can continue building that project and make it into a business that they would like. So we're trying to course correct for some of those criticisms, which I think are valid. So that's how I would address that. 
Yeah, I don't think it's impossible to have a hackathon be a good thing, but I do think that there are a lot of traps you can fall into where it's easy for it to end up being bad. Totally. What I mostly care about is what do you do to avoid those problems and to promote, you know, healthier ways of, of organizing and, you know, things like that. So I'm glad that you're thinking about that stuff, which doesn't also doesn't surprise me. I mean, you seem to care about this a lot. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like we always talk about, OK, the typical hackathon looks like a room full of dudes in hoodies who are in their, you know, early to mid 20s. And we want to expand that to more people. And, you know, one of the things we've been talking about a lot is, you know, bringing more women into our hackathons. And we've done a lot for that. But, you know, for me, it's never going to be enough. Like, it's still not enough, right? Like, we were able to increase our diversity attendance to like 60% female for our last hackathon series, which is awesome, because usually it's around 20%. But still, it's, it's younger women, right? And it's younger women that have a certain level of privilege where they can spend an entire weekend at a hackathon. And, you know, we'd love to look at doing things like childcare and stuff like that. But it's it's kind of like step by step. And sometimes it feels like two steps forward, one step back, but definitely a fight that we're trying to fight. Yeah, I'm just glad that you're, you know, aware of these issues. So many hackathons I see are just, they they don't even consider these things. And then it doesn't go, well, it goes about as well as you would think. Do you have any suggestions for companies that want their, you know, employees to hack on stuff or people that want to organize their own, you know, public hackathons to make sure that they're addressing those issues? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do. And and in some ways, part of it is just blindingly simple. And unfortunately, people just don't even think of these things. But like very basic stuff, like your judging panel needs to represent the community that you want to come to the hack. So, you know, people talk about this a lot, but making sure that the folks who are on your judging panel and your mentors aren't all of one category, right? So if you want to be inclusive of women, if you want to be inclusive of different races and backgrounds, the judging panel should represent that. The staffing should represent that. The mentors at the hack should represent that. I think also it's in the marketing of the event. So making sure you have an inclusivity statement that's very clear, making sure you have a code of conduct. So there's an international hackathon code of conduct that covers harassment and hackathons, which has been an issue in the past. And we've had to kick out or ban people for life for misbehavior. And it's something we're very serious about. Instead of being like, you must stay overnight, saying staying overnight, it's optional. Being flexible about when people can come and go. You know, I've had a lot of people email me before the hackathon and say, hey, I have a childcare issue. Can I still show up at 4 p.m.? And being like, yeah, sure, come. And we'll, you know, figure out how to fit you in. So those are some examples that come to mind. But I think a big part of it is in the pre-hackathon. So marketing, being inclusive, reaching out to groups of, you know, different types and diversities. So and then on the venue being closed from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. so y'all can get some sleep. We do we do that from time to time. So we did a Tech for Good hackathon at the University of San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. And we closed down the venue and people went home. We had to force some people out because they were like, wait, this is not an overnight hack. Um, and I was like, nope, it's not. And I was like turning off the lights and telling them to go home. So <laughs> it's always that balance of like, I want to support the enthusiasm and the people want to come overnight. Like we have some hackathons where we have high school students and their mom literally pulls up in a minivan and drops them off with sleeping bags and pillows. And they love doing the overnight. And I just realized that potentially is free babysitting, but (laughs) (laughs) the parents love it too. But we, we've experimented with the no overnight. We've also experimented with the one day event. But then the question is, 
you know, around the outcomes and the impact of those outcomes, right? Like what can people build in a certain amount of time and how much do they want to dedicate to building that and how functional do they want it to be? So that's another thing to add to the mix of figuring out the right blend for the hackathon model. Rachel, do you have any advice for people who are not programmers, but who want to be involved in hackathons? Because a lot of times the biggest, I guess, hesitation that I encounter is people saying, oh, I would love to go to this hackathon, but I don't know how to program. So I don't think I'm supposed to go. Yeah, you should just go, I guess would be my advice. One thing we've discovered, do you all identify as software developers? Yes. Okay. Sure. Crap. Okay. Well, (laughs) it's okay. You can talk shit about us. No, no, no. I mean, obviously, like, I don't want to insult, like, basically what is probably 80 to 90% of our entire community. But, (laughs) you know, something that's built by a software engineer in a vacuum is not going to have the same impact that something that has input from someone who's not a developer will have. And so, for example, at this Control-Alt-Delete-Hate hackathon we just did, it was a mix of developers and designers and just marketing folks and then activists, you know, in kind of the political and nonprofit space. And they were able to talk a little bit more about the user experience and, you know, what this would mean for the nonprofit that they were building tech for. And they definitely have something to contribute. And I think specifically at our hackathons, when we do team formation at the beginning, we advise teams like, you know, make sure you have someone who does UX or UI design someone who, you know, has business or market experience or experience with the users you're trying to reach on your team because they're going to be more likely to win. So we actually appeal to the competitive spirit of the developers at our events by saying, you know, you're more likely to win or build a, you know, better killer app if you have more diverse perspectives on your team. And that that gets into this concept we have of like the whole developer meaning someone who's not just a developer, a software engineer, or not just a team of software engineers, but holistically looks at a problem. So that's probably a really long answer to that question. I would just say, if I would give advice to people, I would say, just come. And if you feel uncomfortable or you feel like you don't fit in, you should address that directly with the organizers and have them help you find a team. And so I always do that at the beginning. Like everybody comes up, introduces themselves, says, what are their skills? What is their background? A lot of times people come up and say, I'm new to hackathons. And then we always give a round of applause for anyone who's a first time hackathoner, because that takes a lot of courage to show up at a hackathon, let alone introduce yourself to a group of 100 strangers. And then, you know, we make sure that everyone finds a place on a team. So I guess that goes back to the question about how to make hackathons more inclusive. I think that burden definitely lies on the organizers. And then what I would say to the developers who come to hackathons is be open to non-engineers being on your team because you're going to get better perspective. Like you could have a super awesome functional app that, you know, is useless to the person it's meant to serve. And so thinking about that is really important. So you touched on something really interesting there, which is that uh, there's an aspect of the developer psyche that leads us to value our own skills above everything else. And it's sort of captured in this idea in that Jamie Zawinski quote about, uh, I had a problem and I tried to solve it with regular expressions and now I have two problems. (laughs) But you can replace regular expressions with software, right? My first tool of choice, you know, when, when presented with almost any problem is, hmm, I wonder what I can write, what code I could write to fix that. And I'm old enough now to recognize that maybe that's not the best first reaction, but I can't always stop myself from having it and or following up on it, right? 
I think that you're you're trying to say that you're kind of going there because that's what you do all the time, but it may not be the best way to problem solve. But then how do you find the space to be open in the right place so that somebody else different way of problem solving can be a part of the solution? Yes. It's like you're inside my head. <laughs> well, I, I kind of am because since I wasn't always a developer, I actually don't start out thinking what kind of code could I write? So I have a little bit more empathy, I think, for people who are trying to be a part of the group, but they don't have coding skills. Well, Rachel, I think you said something really important earlier, which is that if you have a diverse group of people building something with different ideas and experiences and backgrounds, the thing is better uh, because of it. And that's a good reason to do that. Yeah. Have you guys talked about the movie Code Debugging the Gender Gap on this podcast yet? I don't think so. No, I haven't. I haven't even watched it yet. You might have a guess what I'm about to refer to, Astrid, which is they talk about this specific issue of when you're building things in a vacuum, how terrible that can turn out if you don't bring in diverse perspectives. So that, <laughs> yeah. There's one very serious example that they give and one very funny example that they give. So I guess I'll go with the very serious one first, which is they talk about the design of airbags and how, was it airbags or seatbelts? It's probably- No, it was- I think it was airbags. It's airbags, yeah. And how the folks who originally designed airbags were men and they were designing airbags for men. And then airbags ended up, you know, killing lots of women and children. And, you know, that was an engineering problem. And they if they had had women as part of the process, probably they could have mitigated that issue. And then the second one is a funny one, which is they talk about Clippy. So like Microsoft's little AI assistant and how women in a focus group found Clippy to be creepy and weird. <laughs> but the men who designed it were like, that's not a valid criticism. Oh. Then they ended up rolling out Clippy and we all know what happened to Clippy. So It's like the software avatar of mansplaining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I love talking about those two examples because I think, you know, one shows just how dangerous that can be and also how important design is right in the airbag scenario and then clippy i just find to be hilarious but also becoming more relevant because pretty much like every hackathon i'm at now people are building you know chatbots and virtual assistants like mm -hmm. doing that right now and and I, my concern is making sure they're thinking about that and at the lady problems hackathon we actually have people building a lot of chatbots around you know tracking gender bias communication and then there's a chatbot for imposter syndrome that someone built called Pepper the Pet Bot. So I do think people are using these things for good, but they should use Clippy, I guess. I mean, I don't know how many people Clippy hurt or harmed, but... Um, it was weird. I, I remember it as a kid. And it was I was like, why won't this thing go away? Is it watching me? It's weird. Remember I used to like blink at you? Like just, I'm doing it, right? You guys can't see my face, but I'm doing like the hard blink that Clippies. Oh, yes. Weird. <laughs> I, I may or may not have... Uh given a presentation talk in which I mentioned Clippy and then used a fire animation on it. <laughs> I think that that airbag example is actually a really good one because in the documentary, they talk about how the engineers were not trying to be assholes, basically. They weren't thinking like, we don't need women. They were trying to save lives. And they were so focused on what they were doing that they forgot that everybody is not going to be you know, somewhere between 5'10 and 6'2 and at least 180 pounds. And so when people started dying, they were shocked because they didn't think about it. It wasn't something that was on their radar. And so they were really upset by what happened. 
And I feel like that's kind of what you're trying to do when you're saying make your teams more diverse, try to get other other people's opinions, because you may not have this intention of being an asshole, but you don't always know what you don't know. Yeah. Right. There's also the example of the facial recognition software that couldn't recognize black people. Yeah. But that was more intentional. Was it? Yeah, because that had to do with Kodak and that they were basically trying to sell their cameras and they were focused exclusively on a white audience and they were not trying to be inclusive. Hmm. So that's it evolved from there. Whereas like with the airbags, they weren't actually trying to assume that women never drive cars. They just forgot. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the thing that Astrid just very compactly referred to, film was calibrated in the 50s and 60s with uh, color film rather was was calibrated with reference shots of white people, which is why film did a really poor job of representing the full range of human skin and thus made black people look terrible on camera for decades. And then that cultural legacy is part of what fed into uh, this incident with, uh, I think it was a webcam software developed by HP that would do facial recognition and tracking. But uh, so they had a little camera that supposedly would follow your face around, but it did not recognize black people because all of the subjects that they trained it on were white. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summary? Yes. And on the one hand with things like that, I think, I wonder how many black people they had on that team. And then on the other hand, I think, you know, we build websites that are accessible to deaf and hard of hearing people, blind people. I don't have any blind people on, on teams that I build software on, which is something that I'd like to you know do because I think I, I know some, but I haven't worked with them. But my point is that you don't have to have a black person on that team to have it recognize black people. You just have to care about the problem. You do. But I think also what tends to happen is, at least in tech, you have a lot of people who are trying to change the world with whatever it is that they're building, but they're not going out and talking to people who are a part of the world who are not like them. And they're not having those people on their teams. And so you end up having something that goes out into the world that can do harm because you totally left out all kinds of scenarios that you just don't know about. Yeah, absolutely. I guess my point is that one way to make sure that your team is putting its attention there is to have someone on the team to represent that viewpoint. And the other way is to just make sure that you yourself are representing that viewpoint. So in the case of facial recognition software, you don't need a black person on the team. You can just think about the problem and make sure that you're testing it uh, with a diverse group of, of test subjects, things like that. And it looks like they didn't either, which is possibly intentional, but definitely pretty awful. One of the things I wonder how you do is how you do this in practice. Because when you're at a hackathon, for instance, and you are in a team and a lot of the team, they may be software developers. How do you kind of steer the group towards these questions? Because it is easy for you to just start working on, okay, who's going to do the UI and who's going to do the backend and, and what are we going to make as our data store? Like that, those conversations start really quickly. So I'm wondering, Rachel, if you have some idea or some tips of like how to keep that conversation about who you're actually building it for before you start working on building things. I mean, I guess I could talk about it from the hackathon perspective, which is yeah. uh, we always include UX as a criteria for judging for hackathons. And so when we're talking to our teams about, you know, thinking about what they're going to demo on Sunday, you know, we mentioned UX. And this is about like, how do you build the structure of a hackathon to make sure that the outcomes that are created are the outcomes that you want to get. And I think that boils down to having user experience as a criteria for our hacks. 
And so letting people know one of the things you're going to be based on is have you thought about the end-to-end user experience of your product? And some people listen to that and some people don't. I mean, you know, I think the best you can do is try to instill that question in yourself and then instill it in others around you. And my hope is eventually it like becomes a viral thing. And I think it is. I mean, you know, everybody loves to talk about design thinking these days and um, we get more and more UX and UI folks coming to our hacks and they're super in demand. Like we had a UX person at our hackathon and he was like floating around for, to every single team because everybody just wanted his input. So that was kind of cool to see all the developers being like, where's the UX guy? Where's the UX guy? So that was cool. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is how people organize into relationships and power structures. Uh, and sometimes that's hierarchical and top down in a company. Sometimes it's, it's self-organizing. And my question is, you've done a bunch of hackathons and you've seen people, I'm guessing, come together and sort of self-organize into teams. Is that a thing that they do? So who ends up taking on leadership roles in those teams in terms of what, is it more men? Is it more women? Is it more engineers? Is it more entrepreneurs? Like who ends up in those leadership roles and, and what does that power dynamic look like? Yeah, it really depends on the hackathon. So there's no like standard. It depends on the topic of the challenge, right? So for this, the control all delete hate hackathon we did, you know, there were people, a lot of people who just came and were like, I want to use my skills for good, I don't necessarily know what I want to build. So in some scenarios, we had people who actually had the issues expertise leading the team um, versus, you know, an engineer developer. They were just kind of helping build the vision for the team. If it's a hackathon about machine learning, probably a lot of the people are there just to learn about machine learning and flex their skills around that. But somebody who actually has experience with that will end up being the team lead. So I guess it's like sort of skills and knowledge based depending on what the challenge is. And then I guess there are scenarios where nobody knows what they're doing. And in terms of the power structure there, you know, I'm not sure. I guess it's just kind of who yells the loudest, which probably isn't a great answer. You know, now that's got me thinking about how do we think more about those dynamics within the teams as well. But if I had to get a short answer, it would be skills and knowledge base is where the lead is. Can you extrapolate it all from all of the teams that you've seen as far as what might make a a self-organizing team more or less successful? If I'm going to define success in terms of doing well in the competition, in terms of um, the morale on the team, how people feel about each other and, and, you know, how, how nice everyone is. Yeah. I mean, you can always tell when people go up on stage, what that dynamic is like at a hackathon, if one person goes up and the rest of the team doesn't go up, that means something. If there's more than one person talking, I mean, we advise against more than two people talking because that can usually turn into like chaos. But if there's more than one person doing everything at a time, that means they've all communicated with each other about who's doing what and what role each person has to play. So you can see that at the end. And often when judges are judging projects at hackathons, they'll notice those team dynamics. Um, And the execution is typically much better on the project if everyone has listened to everyone else and they kind of map out who's doing what from the start and what role each person has in the build. And so the quality of the project is almost always higher if everyone on the team has had a say or an input. And some people are better than that than others, right? Like we have some people who, you know, they typically always hack solo or in teams of two because they're not good at group dynamics. And we try to be inclusive of that as well, right? Like if you're someone who just wants to be on your own, okay. You know, like we are open to that. 
So Rachel, I know that recently you had this lady problems hack. Yeah. And I'm interested to know if there was a different kind of mix of people who came to this hackathon and if you did see any differences in the way the teams interacted. Yeah, totally. Um, so it was a lot more women. So our goal was a 50-50 ratio. Typically hackathons are 80-20, so 80% male, 20% female. And it was very different. A lot more collaboration across teams, so less competing with each other directly at the hackathon, even though there was a prize to win, right? We were accelerating the winning team from each city. We did 17 cities, um, but more collaboration across the teams. Something else we noticed was, and I don't know how relevant this is to the question, but I just thought it was an interesting observation that's related to team dynamics and the quality of projects was women are a lot less likely to pitch um, at the end of the hack if their solution is not perfectly built or functional. Whereas men will go up there and demo and pitch even if it's not working and just like do slideware or, you know, show some of the code and talk through it. So that was kind of interesting in terms of even if the project quality was higher or good enough, to demo our pitch, you know, we had some women who were like, I'm not going up there unless my project is perfect. And so that was an sort of an unexpected roadblock that we ran into because a big part of hackathons is, you know, getting up there and showing what you built and knowing that there's no way it's going to be perfect in a 36 hour span. So I'm trying to think what else we observed. So people were much more collaborative. We did have that issue with the confidence of going up there, even if your project wasn't perfect. Yeah, just a totally different dynamic. I mean, what people were building was totally different, right? Like we had four challenges around health, safety, economic empowerment, and culture. And we kind of didn't know which way people were going to go. And it varied in the different cities we were in. So in the Middle East and Africa, people focused a lot more on health and safety. But in the US and Australia and Europe, people were much more focused on cultural bias. So I guess that made it different from a typical hackathon in that you know, the solutions people were focused on were very much designed for the group that was in the room. So yeah, those are some of the differences there. Well, that's interesting. That uh, phenomenon of women pitching versus men pitching tracks really well with this phenomenon of people applying for jobs where men will apply if they meet some portion of the of the requirements, like, I don't know what the actual number is, 40, 50, 60%, something like that. But women will not apply for the job unless they meet all or nearly all of the requirements. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Like I've seen people go up and pitch, you know, things that are completely not even relevant to the hackathon and still have the confidence and the gusto to go up there and be like, there's this one group of <laughs> people that were coming. When you say People, I'm assuming you mean men? Men, yes. Young men. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. I want to call them out specifically because they're actually like, you know, they come through a lot of our hacks and they're great. But somebody must have dared somebody else at some point to pitch Tinder for music at all of our hackathons. Like regardless of what the challenge was or what like the APIs or, you know, platform was they were supposed to be using. They just pitched Tinder for music at like a few different hackathons. And I think it was just, I mean, honestly, it was probably just like a fun griefing strategy. But like still to like have the confidence to go up there and do that in front of a hundred people and kind of mic drop and be like, not relevant, you know, don't even care versus like, you know, I'm thinking of at Lady Problems London, we had a woman who was building, you know, an app and she was doing really well. And then her code just kind of fell apart at the end of the day on Saturday. And we did everything we could to try to convince her to come back and to get people to help her and jump in and she was just like, no, like, this is a piece of crap. Like, I'm not demoing this at a hackathon. 
And so, you know, I just typically overall at the hackathons we see, that's the case, right? Like some people will just go up there regardless of how good or relevant their project is and pitch. Whereas at Lady Problems, we're often having to encourage people to get up there and pitch, you know, hey, even if it's not perfect, like just, you know, get up there and show your stuff. Oh, pranks. Yay. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. so many pranks. There were probably less pranks at Lady Problems. So maybe that's another observation. <laughs> it was definitely a much more safe, inclusive space. What if pranks are actually bad? Yeah, pranks can be bad. I want to at least briefly touch on this idea that you know, what we're talking about is not just some observed phenomenon with no possible cause, right? This is a learned behavior where men get praised for a lot of things and built, they have their confidence built, uh, you know, from the time they're boys and girls do not. And when they grow up into women, they are afraid to pitch something that isn't perfect because they know they're going to get a lot more crap for it. Yeah. But what I find interesting is that, like Rachel had said, that the majority of people at this hackathon were also women. And a lot of efforts are usually made to try to create environments where women feel safe. And even in this environment where you actively tried to make sure that it was going to have more representation of women, uh, a lot of women still didn't feel confident enough to pitch their their own project. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was a lot. Like, I don't want to discredit. Like, we had women all over the world, like, pitching badass stuff. So it wasn't, like, a totally systemic issue. It was just an unexpected observation that we ran into at quite a few of the hackathons, um, you know, encouraging people like to get up there and pitch, which, you know, and I, and I have done that with men too, you know, teams at hackathons, like everyone has a moment where everything falls apart and shit hits the fan, usually at like two in the morning on Sunday um, and encouraging them to still go do it. But specifically it was much more of an issue with lady problems. And I think that building a space for, confidence and you know we talked about it too like is the pitching format right like making someone go up on stage and demo versus doing like the science fair type feedback so it, it does relate to the structure but yeah no i mean it certainly is an issue that in its systemic um like you know we did a lady problems in delhi india and the last time we did a hackathon in delhi the female turnout was three percent you know the idea that you need to go to an event with a bunch of men and stay there overnight and travel to it and come home, you know, that it's not a very safe concept in certain regions. And when we did lady problems, just the fact that we have set up this inclusive space, we had a 20% female turnout for that event. So that was an increase of 17%. And part of it was just letting them know that it was a safe space and the challenges were related specifically to women's issues made a difference. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's also kind of different in, in different regions in the world and how that's kind of been ingrained or not. And yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. But it's it's a it's a tough question because like we're talking about like, you know, how, you know, women and men are raised from birth. And then on top of that, we're trying to do this in, you know, Gaza, India, Nairobi. And then, you know, there's certain things that are true across the board and then certain things that are more or less true in the different regions. So it's definitely a challenge. <laughs> I'm sure it's just a coincidence that a lot of failures happened at two AM. right yeah speaking of like working overnight or not working overnight and we did and some of the lady problems hackathons we didn't do an overnight because it wasn't safe the hackathon we did in gaza for lady problems there was not an overnight okay here's a question have you noticed a difference in success rates for hackathons that have overnight participation versus those that don't not really but what happens is a lot of people go home and keep hacking anyway Mm -hmm. 
So they, so they get all of the negative effects of working overnight, even when they're not supposed to. Cool. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but they do it to themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they sort of do it to themselves. I mean, I think it's a good point. Um, but some people like that. I mean, some people, the reason they do hackathons is they're like, all right, I'm going to dedicate 48 hours to learning this new topic. And then I'm kind of, you know, I've, I've leveled up, right? One or two levels in that skill. And they like that intense crunch versus spreading something out like a virtual hackathon, which is like one to three months, and you've got plenty of time to learn. But some people don't have the self-discipline. I mean, including myself. Like if I have to work on a project that doesn't have a strict deadline, that project is not getting done until 24 hours before. So there are different... I think it's also about people's work styles. Um, and for some people, it's they don't have you know three months to work on a project. Maybe they only have one weekend to learn a new skill. So that's kind of the flip side of that. So have you tried to do anything as part of the framing and setup for these hackathons that would, you know, help encourage people to fail and fail spectacularly and be proud of it? It occurred to me as you were talking that you could like give a prize for the like most glorious implosion of a project, right? Or talk about epic fails from previous ones. But like, have you tried anything like that? No, but I love that idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and it depends on the hackathon too. Like if it's a super high stakes, hackathon like we do this big hackathon called money 2020 in vegas it's tons of like massive cash prizes and things like that like the epic failures we have to be more careful about celebrating the epic failures because it's so competitive but like at hmm. control alt delete hey this hackathon we did last weekend sorry i'm super obsessed with this hackathon because it was just last weekend and i didn't sleep the entire weekend and it was awesome but i think <laughs> at that one like we had people come up and demo and then their laptop died you know, in the middle of the demo and they hadn't, gotten their, <laughs> they hadn't gotten their simulator set up yet on their laptop. And I was just like, you know what, like, fine, we're just going to put you at the end and you can start over. And it was like kind of funny, right? Like it was like, it was a very like safe space. And it was like, oh, you screwed up. Like you'll get another try. And I love that. But when you're doing like a 600 person hackathon there, there just literally isn't time because people would be there forever demoing for that. So it, it depends on the type of event you want to create and different people like different types of events. But I like the idea of celebrating failure. I mean, as a company, we celebrate failure. Like whenever someone screws up at our company, it's almost like there's a little internal celebration about it. Like, Oh, we effed that up. Oops. So I like the idea of trying to fit that into structured into the hackathon a little bit more. Be interesting. Yeah, it just seems like an interesting way to sort of help set the tone at the beginning. Yep. I'm writing that down. Failure. Glorious failure. Glorious failure. I learned so much from those. Yeah. I mean, and a hackathon in and of itself is kind of like the majority of the teams don't build like a fully functioning solution that's ready to go to market, right? Like it's almost to see like how good you can fail sort of at a hackathon, right? Like you have 24 hours to build something. Often you're learning a totally new topic and then you've got to figure that out all in a weekend. So in some ways, everybody kind of fails. It's just seeing like who failed the best. <laughs> or, yeah, or can you fail in an interesting way? I'm not like 100% committed to that concept, but I do love the idea of celebrating failure. Benjamin Zander, who uh, is a conductor for the Boston Philharmonic and gave a TED talk about leadership, uh, which was very good, has this thing that he, he tells his students where when they make a mistake, he tells them to throw their hands up in the air and say, how fascinating, rather than getting like really upset and hunched, hunched over and angry with themselves. And it's interesting because actually changing your posture and not and not letting yourself put your body in positions you put yourself in when you're sad, it makes a difference. I'm really interested in 
ways that we can get around or, or rewrite people to not look at failure as some sort of taboo thing that they have to avoid at all costs. Yeah. Because it turns out that failure is actually one of the best things you can do if you're trying to learn. Then there's the flip side of that, which is like, you know, the whole, I feel like there's this issue in Silicon Valley around moving fast and breaking things, like celebrating failure. Yeah. So much so that it's like, you don't think about the collateral damage with that mentality. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Yeah. So it's like, how do we celebrate and, you know, have failure be not something that's scary, but also not have it be so like so ingrained that people are like, I'll fail at any cost kind of thing. I don't know. Celebrate learning from failure. Yes. Celebrate learning from failure. Well, You have to put in the work to make it safe to fail. So mitigating the downside risks of failure and things like that. You mean like a safety net kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. That makes sense. So safety nets mitigate the downside risk of falling off of the trapeze or whatever. I think this goes back to the user experience question, right? That's like, if we fail, what's the fallout? Like, who does that impact? So like, if we fail to design this properly, what's the collateral damage? And like thinking about that in advance. Often the reason people fail is because they haven't thought of all the right things in advance. So I feel like it's kind of a <laughs> catch-22. Yeah, this sounds like what I brought up in our last show, which was that computer scientists don't have to learn about ethics. And that seems to be reflecting in a lot of what's going on. And I do think that this is an opportunity for somebody else who has that background or understands those questions to try to join these hackathon teams because they do have this perspective of, we should be thinking about what happens when this fails. We should be thinking about the consequences of picking this particular you know route to take with whatever it is we're building. Since oftentimes, if somebody did study computer science, they're not going to have that in their background. And a lot of people are also self-taught, so they may not have it there either. As somebody with a computer science degree, I believe there was a course offered. It may even have been like a one credit requirement, uh, in which case I had it waived because I was looking at my transcript and I did not take it. Yay me. Uh, rather, yay my school. <laughs> I think it's an interesting question. Like I'd love to look at a lot of people who come to hackathons are coming out of like coder schools, like Hack Reactor and General Assembly and Hackbrite and things like that. And I do think a lot of them are doing a good job at focusing more on inclusivity and diversity. But I'm curious if they offer like ethics as part of their overall boot camp or program. Um, and I'm not sure specifically, but I think that'd be interesting because in certain parts of the world, that is a you know significant makeup of our hackathon attendance. So now I'm like, now I'm going to go back to my team and be like, guys, we have to build an ethics workshop at every hackathon. And they're going to be like, oh God. <laughs> I think that sounds like a really great idea. Yeah. No, I mean, I do think it's, it's an interesting concept writing that down too. I've written down failure and put a big circle around it. And then I've written down ethics and put a big circle around it. Circles mean special things. Circles mean special things. <laughs> a circle is inclusive. It should be an open circle, actually. I made a closed circle. So there you go. Bad design. Yeah, I wish we could have an entire show just on how we approach failure. Yeah. Why can't we? I don't know. <laughs> Within the context of hackathons, I think failure is especially interesting because they're a high-pressure situation. There are unusual downside risks to failure. You know, you're not just losing an hour or two of work. You're potentially losing money, prestige, a number of things that aren't normally on the table uh, when you're just, you know, at your day job. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I have a question there. I just think it's interesting to think about what, what might some of the, the factors be that make people more afraid of failure in that situation. 
Yeah. I mean, it's more or less afraid, right? Because it's it, for most people, it's not your day job. So in some ways, it is an opportunity to fail spectacularly because, yes, you may not win you know, the prize, but you learn the limits of your own abilities and knowledge. And as long as you can find meaning in it and learn from that, that has value in and of itself. So sometimes having those constraints or I guess lack of constraints does help with personal growth. I'm not sure everyone has that experience, but I think that's why a lot of people come to the hackathons is, you know, it's not your day job. So if, if the code breaks and you crash the entire thing, yes, that sucks, but you know, you're not taking down an entire company. This is also a good example of uh, a form of diversity that we don't often consider, which is how do people respond to stress? Yeah. Uh, and I think that people that run teams of developers should think about that on their teams. And what causes them stress? Yeah, because you'll have some people that will respond to the same stressors in very different ways. And you see that you're, you know, that's sort of what you're talking about at the hackathon is some people look at it as an opportunity to try things. And, well, if it doesn't work, you know, no big deal. It was just a hackathon. And then other people, oh, I really need that prize or I need to, you know, show my work and have it be accepted. And then they, they have a very different response. Yeah, definitely something to think about. I mean, we just get all types. Like whenever someone asks me, give me the person X at a hackathon, honestly, everyone is so different in the way they react and engage and approach the hackathons. And I think that's part of, honestly, what we like about it and we would change. Like we can put as much structure in place as possible to make it a positive experience for people, but people will always react differently in those situations. I mean, there are always people who are like, you know, like I gave the scenario of someone who goes up and pitches something totally not relevant and still has a great time versus somebody who builds something amazing and doesn't have the confidence to pitch. It's such a mix. When you look at the different ways that people respond to that pressure, you know, some of them look at it as an opportunity. Some of them end up quitting the hackathon. Do you think that there's a stigma associated with certain ways of responding to stress? You know, the people that maybe don't want to share their work when it's not done. Do you think there's a stigma that other people associate with failure that prevents them? Like, I, I'm just, I'm trying to get a handle on the, the dynamic there at the hackathon. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, we always try to encourage people to pitch and share what they've created because I find that when people go up there and do it, they always get something out of it. Like it may just be getting feedback from the judges or it may just be having the experience of doing public speaking when you're not, you know, you don't always have the opportunity to do that, which, you know, a lot of, a lot of developers don't have opportunities to do public speaking. And so doing that, or, you know, just the experience of having completed something, even if it's not totally done. So I do try to encourage people to pitch, but we never like shame people if they don't, you know, I, I, oh, always yeah, I, I, I didn't think you did. I, I guess I meant more like other, other participants, uh, more no. of a peer thing. Not really. I mean, people are so focused on their own thing. Like they get so in the zone on their own project, typically by the end that they're not really thinking about other people or, you know, guilting those, those people in any way. Because everyone comes to get a different experience out of it. And I feel like everyone commonly accepts that about everyone else at a hackathon is we're all here to get something different out of this. Like there are the new coders who just want to learn and build. There are the professional hackathon hackers who are coming to win the prizes and everyone kind of respects everybody else's space around what they want to create. And if they don't respect that space, we kick them out. <laughs> so I haven't seen that. Yes, professional hackathon hackers is a thing. Yeah. You're blowing my mind here. There are people who actually make their living like that. Yeah. And people get on winning streaks too. 
Like I mentioned, we have a team of high schoolers. They're actually not professional hackers by any means, but they're on kind of a winning streak right now. <laughs> and it's awesome. One of them is like 14 years old and they're, you know, winning hackathons. But yeah, there are people who go to the big ones with the big prizes and they can kind of make, I, I don't know if I would say it's, it's, I would recommend it as a career, but you certainly can do it. I have yeah. a random question for you, Rachel. Yes. So when in your origin story, you were talking yeah. about how you wanted to be an art therapist. Yeah. Do you see threads of that and what you're doing now? I think if I, yeah, I mean, if I dig into that, I feel like that's like a question a therapist might ask me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So let me dig into my own psyche. No, I think like I see tremendous value in how different types of media can create a therapeutic experience for people. So I think ultimately, like when I look at hackathons, that's why it moves me so much because different people are getting different personal benefits out of experimenting with the media that they're working within. So like they're coding and they're putting something together. And for a lot of people that is therapeutic, like, okay, I'm in this range of time and I'm going to try to solve this problem using this medium and even if the outcome, you know, isn't a Monet, you still have put that effort into creating something and creating meaning out of the medium that you're working within. Does that make any sense? So like, I think, yeah. I think that's why it gets to me because I'm like, this person just came for this weekend to create something. Yes. For a prize and yes, to learn, but you know, kind of for the sake of creating something. And we do, we have, we've accelerated quite a few businesses out of our hackathons, but not everyone's there to start a business. And so, yes, I have honestly not thought about that until you asked me that question. So I'm a little bit like, oh, no, but, your answer makes yeah. sense. I, I thought about it because of how you said you often cry at hackathons and it made me think, oh, they must be like, she must be really proud of like how far they've come in a weekend. Yeah, I am. I don't know. There's just something about it. Like when someone gives their all and does something in a short amount of time, I honestly still need to like unpack why hackathons make me cry. I don't, I don't know. We don't, we don't have to do a therapy session. It's okay. <laughs> no, but the same thing happens to me at marathons. Like I cannot watch a marathon because I'll just always cry. So there's something about that concept of people coming together to achieve things that don't necessarily always, you know, have like an, an immediate outcome. I mean, I guess when you run a marathon, you're like, I ran a marathon, right? But do you get where I'm going with this? Like, there's something about that bringing people together around a specific topic in a finite period of time. Mm -hmm. And they all show up and they all come out and they all contribute. And then, you know, they might go back to their, their normal lives. And I, to me, there's something powerful about that. And I, I am by no means a religious person and I've never practiced religion, but I think it, for me, it sort of ties to that. Like this, we were, are agreeing to share this collective experience and get some benefit out of it. I don't know. It's something like that. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with that. Okay. So we've come to a time in the show where we try to reflect on something that came up during the discussion that stuck out or made an impression on us. One of the things that stuck out to me about this discussion is how much talking about hackathons is really talking about all kinds of other issues. Because it's an opportunity for a lot of people to come together who are different, it brings up things that we often describe around these tech-adjacent problems of how do you make diverse teams, how do you encourage people to 
put themselves out there and to present their work? How do you make sure that you're being inclusive? And I didn't really think about hackathons like that before. I just kind of thought about it as like a cool activity to go do. But now it makes me think that when I participate, I'll be looking around a little bit more to see how is this affecting everybody else too. I would like my reflection to be that your reflection was awesome. (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, I guess the hackathons are sort of a little microcosm of development overall, but I hadn't really thought that through to the cultural implications. And that's great. Mm -hmm. And I also really appreciated, Rachel, your criticism of developers, because I don't think that it's bad to voice how a lot of people who are not developers feel at the hackathons. And I think also a lot of developers don't even know that they may be making an environment that's not as open because they're just doing what they do. So it's good to have some sort of feedback. Before you said your awesome thing, I was I was thinking back to the conversation about uh, developers having a very sort of defaulting perhaps to a very egocentric mindset and Uh, I was really struck by that reminder to me to not only just to make room for non-developers, but to actively seek out people with those uh, different perspectives that make everybody do better. So thank you. We've been talking about the atmosphere at a hackathon and the creative atmosphere and the pressure that people are under, how we deal with failure, how there's some aspect of coaching going on their motivation. And there's, I mentioned Benjamin Zander earlier, and I wanted to specifically highlight uh, one of his talks that you can find on the YouTubes. It's called Leadership on Display. And what he, he does something fascinating, which is he takes a kid, a local kid who plays uh, the cello, uh, and he puts him on stage and he has him rehearse a piece. And as he is going through the piece, he makes a variety of mistakes. They discuss the interpretation and uh, that process of them sort of mutually creating that piece together on stage was was fascinating to me. The way that he encouraged and made sure that the the student was motivated it's it's really great. So if you're in a position of leadership and and you're looking at how to motivate people to do their best work and and deal with failure in positive ways, I think you could take a lot of lessons from him. I guess if we're talking to developers and software engineers, just thinking about this concept of the hackathon being a microcosm for like a broader uh, ecosystem, I guess. Developers and engineers are sort of literally building the future that we're going to live within. So potentially, you know, this concept of we already have our pants computers and eventually we're all going to be living within some sort of coded system, depending on how global warming goes. Understanding your responsibility within this world. And I think, you know, there's something about responsibility and accountability within hackathons, right? So my initial key takeaway is going to be show up and contribute and listen. And I think that that fits within the broader context. So I guess my key takeaway for um, engineers and developers is you are the stewards of sort of the future systems that people are going to live within. And therefore, thinking about those people that are going to live within those systems and the ethics of that is extremely important. And you're not just writing code, you're kind of building this future system that people live within. So yeah, show up, contribute and listen. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Rachel. We had such a great conversation and we'll see you all next week.